Hello, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. like talking about your books on a shelf. It's yes. like, that sounds like an innuendo. Everything's an innuendo if you do it right. That's true. <laughs> All right, let's jump off this train. That's Hi, going. Y'all. That's going nowhere good. We're going nowhere good, and we're going there fast. So, uh, hi, everybody. Hello. Welcome back to Campfire Classics. Um, this is our 14th episode. I believe you. I believe myself. Uh, <laughs> I've been promoting the crap out of it on the, the Twitters and the Facebooks. Yeah. And uh, I know it's called Twitter and Facebook. I just like to be the old lady that is in my soul. Someone someone has to be <laughs> an adult. adult. And Lord knows it ain't gonna be me. Oh, what's been going on this week? Um, I, I don't know. I've been hiding in a little hole away from most of the world. Yeah, we've been in our apartment a lot. Um, today's the first day of early voting in Virginia. It is. And there are lines around the corners and it makes me happy. So get out and vote. Get out and vote early if you can. Um, do it. Do it, do it, do it. Yeah, speaking of voting, when this episode comes out, it will be September 22nd. 22nd. Yeah. Uh, Tuesday, September 22nd, which will put it just about what 22 days shy of my birthday ah yeah now there are um there are a lot of people out there in the world who are doing amazing things for their birthday they're doing fundraisers um raising money for for great causes and i love that i think that's incredible but i also think that a lot of people don't have a ton of extra money to donate to charities, and I don't necessarily think that whatever I would raise money for is more important than whatever other people are raising money for. So, if you're listening and you want to do something for my birthday, here are two things that you can do for my birthday for Which free. Is October 12th. Yes. Hey, friends. Ken punching in here really quick to say I'm an asshole. Heather is correct, as she just pointed out. My birthday is October 12th, and I incorrectly mathed and identified that as 22 days away. It's not. It's 20. I'm going to double down on my bad math later. Just ignore me. So here are two things you can do for my birthday for free. One, register to vote. It's, it's it's not hard, um, but register to vote and figure out when and where and how and all of those things that you can go vote. Uh, four years ago, 42% of eligible voters didn't. So just don't be one of them this year. Yeah, vote. It's, uh, you're an American. You're, it's, it's part of your privilege. Yeah. So exercise it. Uh, and the other thing you can do that is completely free is, and since you're listening to this podcast anyway, it's not hard for you. Just whatever app you're listening to this episode on, find the little subscribe button 
and and hit subscribe so that you you download automatically the new episodes. The more subscribers we have, it's it just it helps us out a ton. Um, improves our reach. If you are already a subscriber, then you can take it one step further and just go ahead and share this this podcast with three friends. Yay, three friends for Ken's birthday. That's it. That's all I ask. Yeah. It's free and it takes you 45 seconds to do it. Um, yeah. So and it helps us get more, more followers. The more followers we have, the more followers we're going to get and then possible other things will happen. Yeah. So... You can help us out immensely in that way. And it's all for Ken's birthday. All for my birthday, which is uh, from the day that this episode is releasing, which should be Tuesday, September 22nd. It'll be 22 days, uh, October 12th. So 22 magical days to make some magic happen. Um, Speaking of magic, we got a new patron this week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we know that not everyone has a lot of money right now, and we understand that. But again, you can become a patron and support us by subscribing, liking, sharing, etc. But you can also become a patron on Patreon. And this week we have a new patron and it is Mr. Craig Kelberg. Yep, that's uh, that's my little brother. Uh, he joined up and started being a, a patron of ours. And um, hey, Craig, thank you. Yeah. That was really cool of you. Much obliged. Craig's the best. So uh, he's been listening since the beginning and he has... Uh, has gone a step further because apparently we've entertained him somewhat. So, <laughs> so, so yay. So if you're interested in becoming a patron and getting a, a cool shout out on the interwebs and on the streaming services, then uh, head over to uh, patreon.com slash 5050artsproduction.com. So that's patreon.com slash 5050artsproduction.com. And 5050 is our umbrella company if you're new to the podcast. So we run that as well. So it goes to Campfire Classics. Yeah. I promise. I promise. I know the owner. It's me and Ken. <laughs> hey. Hey, do you do you hear that music? I, I think, don't. I, you don't you don't hear that music? I don't. I think that's Are I you think it a sounds stroke? like no, it sounds like it sounds like it sounds like true crimes and a lie. <gasps> Okay, so that song means that it's time for everybody's favorite game show, True True Crimes Crimes and a Lie! Lie. Or at least it's everyone's favorite game show if you listen to last week's episode. Oh my god, I'm so excited. (laughs) I love this new segment. Uh, So last week, our theme was one of uh, uh, women killers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't even put that together. Because well, except Mr. Shakespeare. He was the victim. Oh, that's right. He was the victim. That's yeah. Right. The murderers in all three of our stories last week were uh, were women. Girl power. <laughs> I mean, that's a weird sort of girl <laughs> power. Um, so, mean, really. <laughs> so this week, uh, I'm in addition to uh, to seeing if you can figure out which one is the lie. Okay. I'm curious if you'll be able to figure out what my theme was. Oh. Okay, so it's it a double-ended. So this is a twofer. Because I was so good at last week. Because you were so good at last week. I guess the two that were lies. Okay. <laughs> that were real crimes and the lie I didn't get at all. Before we begin, a quick recap of what this game is. This is True Crimes and a Lie. I am going to read a summary or a synopsis of 
two true crimes and one crime novel, and it will be Heather's job to see if she can figure out which one is the lie, is the novel. Also, this should go without saying, but uh, spoiler alert for not only a crime story, but also potentially for other pop culture things that might be referenced in this section, I am literally about to share the synopsis of a crime novel. So if you're worried about spoilers, <laughs> sorry. Well, easy, or if you've already read it, then you, you're going to win today. Yeah, so feel free to play along at home. Please play along because I'm not very good at it. All right. So once again, I'm going to read all three of these synopses. Um, well, sort of read. I've taken notes on them. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to go through all three of these synopses, and then it's your job to try to guess. This is what it's like to do a true crime podcast. Which is which. Uh, so the first one, okay. uh, this one happened back in the 30s. That's actually an important part of the story. Okay, 1930s. Um, uh, a man was killed in what appeared to be a drunk driving car wreck. Oh. There were two other people involved, the man's wife and one of her co-workers. They were both injured. Um, now, looking into the dead man's history, investigators noticed that he had recently suffered an injury that raised a few red flags. The man's wife and co-worker were charged with the murder. The woman, Cora, ended up confessing in hopes of getting a plea deal. And here's what she said. She had met the other man, her co-worker, Frank, on his first day of work, and they became involved. Since divorce was not really an option, that's the important part, this is the 30s. Since divorce wasn't really an option and the woman, Cora, was unhappy, Frank agreed to help her kill her husband. The first plan was to try to stage him slipping, hitting his head, and drowning in the bathtub. Okay. Which is where the man's previous injury came from, that the the investigators went, wait a second, this is weird. But they screwed up. Oh, no. They managed to hurt him. But through a series of weird coincidences, essentially, he he didn't end up drowning. So he just thought he fell down and hurt himself. (laughs) Several days later, after the failed first murder attempt, they decide to stage a drunk driving accident, which might have been the inspiration for that scene in Death Becomes Her. Um, (laughs) But Frank was also injured more than he planned on being. He he didn't think he was going to get, like, stuck in the car and hurt himself. Um, However, through a series of sort of uh, lawyer tricks and back-channeling that included playing up the innocent woman card, which I have to assume was probably an influence for the musical Chicago, um, (laughs) the the state granted Cora a plea agreement under which she was given a suspended sentence and no jail time. In fact, she got to go back to working at the job where she met Frank. Oh, damn. That's story number one. Okay. Story number two. A New York man uh, had been sentenced to um, two felonies. He he had pleaded guilty, Mm -hmm. and he was going to be sentenced for two felonies. Okay. Uh, A representative from his attorney's office notified the court that the defendant had died and requested the pending sentences be dismissed. So the guy who had been convicted and pled guilty, his lawyer came in and said, yeah, he's dead. Please dismiss the charges. Wait, he's, he's dead. he died, so he, he can't died. serve his sentence. Right. Um, so the attorney uh, came into the district attorney's office with a New Jersey death certificate about a week later, which declared that the man, uh, whose name was 
Berger, I think that's his last name, uh, had died of suicide by suffocation. Uh, he said that uh, Berger's fiance had brought in the death certificate. The district attorney's office, however, noticed something weird. The font type and size appeared to be different than standard death certificates. What's more, there was a glaring typo. Oh, no. And authorities <laughs> oh, grew, no. grew more suspicious when they noticed that. The word registry had been misspelled as registry. <laughs> um, the, the That's statement, something I would do. The statement from the DA said something along the lines of, submitting fake documents to prosecutors is always a bad idea, and while Berger probably would have been caught anyway, failure to use spell check made the alleged fraud especially glaring. Wow. Uh, after calling to verify the certificate, investigators confirmed that it was a fake. The man was tracked down. The forgery was confirmed. His lawyer dropped the case. And a third felony was added to his charges. Whoopsie. Um, I suppose this could also be considered an inspiration for a lot of stories, including, or possibly taking inspiration from a lot of stories, yeah. including, like, Sherlock Holmes fakes his own death. Yeah. Uh, Juliet fakes his own death, her own death. Um, yeah. I think a fake death is like the pivotal plot point of the movie Gone Girl, too. I've never seen that. I think I've only ever seen previews and read synopses, oh. but I'm pretty sure that's a pivotal thing okay. that happens. Well, good. So anyway, good. Uh, check that's, out that movie. That's story number two. Uh, All right. Story okay. number three. A man told the police that his sister claims to have buried her one-year-old daughter in a park near her home in Nashville. Oh, no. This upset him for the obvious reasons, but also because he pointed out that he had never met the one-year-old child, he was unaware that his sister was a mother, oh. or that she had ever even been pregnant. Okay. So the next day, uh, the woman, whose name was Glenna, confirmed the story with police. She told them her ex-boyfriend had shot the baby, and she had buried her one-year-old daughter in a shallow grave in the neighborhood park. Uh, and she said she was there when it had happened. No. She then led the detectives to the part of the park where her daughter was supposed to be buried, but forensic investigators and dogs were unable to find any human remains in the park. The woman was arrested and charged with giving a false report to the police. She ended up confessing. She had not been pregnant there was no baby. She invented the whole thing. What? The cops couldn't figure out why she had told this particular lie. Usually fake pregnancies are used as either a way to make money or of like ensnaring the, the boyfriend yeah. or fiance into yeah. something. Uh, clearly this was not the case here. No. There was no money to be made. And when you accuse the boyfriend of murdering like a the non-existent a non-existent baby. baby, that's not a great way to to um, trap a man. No. Um, medical experts believed that it could have been some sort of attention-seeking behavior, either linked to a mental disorder or to substance abuse. That sounds um, like some meth right she, there. She did have a lengthy history of legal trouble, including being accused of domestic abuse and once threatening to murder a police officer and attack his family. Okay. Uh, eventually, she did confess to having made up the child, but the legal question of how to deal with someone who was clearly unstable, either because of drug use or a medical condition, remains unanswered. So that, okay, so 
Okay. So those so, are those are the three stories. Okay, so those are the three stories. I think the theme is deception, lies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yay! Look what I did. I got one part right. Okay. <laughs> um, because it immediately took me to a story, and I know it's not this story, but it like for some reason the like everything about it reminded me of it. I'm gonna go with A, is the lie. Okay. Because it made me think of Great Gatsby. Just because it's the 30s. <laughs> okay. And they're in a car, and there's that famous scene where they're in the car, and like, you know, all that crazy shit. All right. And she's after this guy while she's with this guy, and I don't know. So I'm going to go with A, because that was my first instinct, because it took me to an actual story. Okay. That's it. That's my answer. Final answer. <laughs> A, final, final answer. answer. All right. Uh, so, option A is the plot to The Postman Always Rings Twice by James M. Kane. I won? You won. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, yay! <laughs> no, it really, it, it made me think of uh, Gatsby. Like, yeah. like the 30s, and like, the making him fall down in the bathtub made me think of Downton Abbey. <laughs> when when uh, Mrs. Bitch made, like, <laughs> makes, that, makes her mistress fall down because she's pregnant, and I'm like, that's fucked up. But, uh, and then like, Matthew in Downton Abbey dies in a car accident, so yeah, it took me back to like, that era. And I was like, ooh, ooh, okay. And I'm pretty sure I've heard the third story about the lady burying a the, like, the non-existent baby. The second and third stories are actually both in the last year. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I think maybe I... I don't know if I've heard that story, because there's a lot of, like, kooky things that happen yeah. like that. Um, and the middle story's insane. <laughs> He's just like, oh, uh, yeah, I died. And I'm like... Yep. I mean, that does sound like the plot to many, many, many stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listeners, if you have um, crime stories, either true crime stories and or, and even more so, fictional crime stories that you want to write a paragraph or two to summarize and have us read that on this game show... I'm sure Ken would appreciate that. Absolutely. And eventually, I'm going to probably try some of these. So if you want to fictionalize a fiction, <laughs> if you want to non-fictionalize a fictional uh, crime story, uh, send that in to 5050artsproduction at gmail.com, 5050artsproduction at gmail.com, or to our website, www.campfireclassicspodcast.com. Uh, send those and we will mention you and we'll be incredibly appreciative. Yeah. If you send us an email, this this would be great. If you send us an email, 5050artsproduction at gmail.com with the heading uh, True Crimes and a Lie. I will um, read it. If if uh, yeah, so that's that's the subject. And go ahead and if you want, you can put together a a two crimes and a lie, and I will play your game right here yeah that would be that would be awesome but if you just have either crime ideas or novel ideas that we could use as well i'll i'll be happy yeah. to throw that together send them over and have fun with it that was fun i love this game all right <laughs> this has been true crimes and a lie where i read true crimes and a lie <laughs> where we try and pick up listeners by reading true crimes <laughs> This, this has been True Crimes and a Lie, where we try to snake listeners from true crime podcasts. Boom! I don't, I don't know if our game show within a podcast needs a tagline. I don't know if it does. If uh, you think of one, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> true Crimes and a Lie! Do, 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 do,
segments and it might have been the 90s it might have been a little bit the 90s there was a the brother had a rat tail and the sister was like oh my god like totally uh. <laughs> she was wearing giant like pink earrings i was like oh my and the dad has like an afro yeah it's <laughs> but like white boy afro. yeah it's it was uh it was wild um all right guess who's reading this week it's you lina lina oh kidding meow meow that would be a very interesting story let me tell you, she tells a lot of stories with her noises. Especially when we try and show her affection. She's just not having it. So, do you want to know what you're reading this week? No, I just figured I'd try to make up a story this time. Oh, yeah, if you could, that'd be fine. <laughs> See if I could guess the words. I mean, you know, I think you got to do what you got to do. You are going to be reading another suggestion from one of our Facebook groups. Alrighty. Um, and um, this is the writer Fitzjames O'Brien. I wonder where he's from. Um, he's from Czechoslovakia. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, it sounds sounds vaguely Slavic. <laughs> um, honestly, that was not the name he was born with, So he is, but he is Irish. So uh, uh, this is the short story, What Was It? All right. Ooh, okay. What was it? Question mark. All right. So I'm going to give you some fun facts about Mr. Fitzjames O'Brien, who was born Michael O'Brien. So he went from Irish to, er- to Irish stereotype. To Irisher. <laughs> like, uh, he was born in Cork, Ireland, and he was the son of a lawyer. So not a lot of information on his childhood, which means I'm guessing it went pretty smooth. Which is gay for a lot of these writers. That's not the truth. That's not always true. um, He did uh, go off to college at the University of Dublin, and that's where he started writing, really. Um, Two of his poems were published in the Ballads of Ireland. And after college, which he, again, very little about him there. So, again, good for him. Um, He moved to London, and he ran through his inheritance of 8,000 pounds in two years. And so he began working as a journalist. 8,000 pounds in two years in what, 18... This was 1852. 52. Like, I could make $8,000 last two years now. Oh, yeah. Almost. <laughs> almost. Not in New York, but... And he's in London. But, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of money. <laughs> so, whoops. He was having... So he had a really Dude was good... living large. He had a really good couple years in London. Then he goes, up, oh, better get a job. Um, so he started working in journalism full time. Um, so in, in 52, he was like, okay, I spent all this money in London. I'm going to move to America. So he immigrates to America in New York city and in the process changes his name to Fitz James as his first name. So we get Fitz James O'Brien and, uh, he soon became a very important figure in New York city's Bohemia movement, which makes sense as a writer. Um, some of his earliest writings in the United States were in the Lantern, um, also the Home Journal, the New York Times, and the American Whig Review. Um, first important literary connection was was with Harper's Magazine, and beginning in February 1853 with the Two Skulls, 
he contributed more than 60 articles in prose and verse to that periodical. So he occasionally wrote for the New York Saturday Press, uh, Vanity Fair, Atlantic Monthly. So he was he was kicking butt as a journalist. He also uh, did some playwriting and some adaption work and, of course, his um, literature, his fiction. So his short story in 1858, From Hand to Mouth, has been referred to as, quote, the single most striking example of surrealistic fiction to predate Alice in Wonderland. Wow. And that's from Sam Mouskowitz, not from American Tale. Um, not Feifel Mouskowitz. <laughs> not Feifel Mouskowitz. Uh, and that was in 1971 that that was said about him. Um his psychological penetrating tales of pseudoscience and the uncanny made him one of the forefront, the forerunners of modern science fiction. Hmm. So that's fun. There was actually a really great quote about this book, this story, but I don't want to give it because it kind of gives a little bit away. So okay. talk about it afterwards. Um, there is a first in science fiction in this story we're going to read. Oh. A for early, okay. early appearance of and or first. Um his life wrapped up a little sooner than uh, th- he probably would have liked and the world would have liked because he was such a great writer. Um, when the Civil War began in 1861, he joined the 7th Regiment of the New York National Guard and um, was hoping to be sent to the front. He was stationed at Camp Cameron outside D.C. for six weeks, and then his regiment returned to New York and he received an appointment on the staff of General Frederick Lander. He was severely wounded in a skirmish on February 26, 1862, and that wound lingered until April, and then he died of tetanus in Maryland. Mm. So he died young, um, but we have quite a bit of literature from him in the in his short life, and um, at least he fought for the unions. <laughs> <laughs> So, so we can feel a little better about that. Yeah, anyway. so thanks, Fitz James O'Brien, for, for your uh, your uh, sacrifice to the, the cause. And here we are. And <laughs> and thank you to Murray Leader yes. for recommending this story. Yes, thank you, Murray Leader, for uh, sending this our way. Because I do not know this writer, and now I'm like, wow. It seems like every time we do these like fun facts, I'm like, how do I know? How is this not someone I've heard of before? Yeah, like how... Because look, look at his past. I mean, all the places he contributed to and stuff. But all right. So why don't we start the campfire? That clap definitely made the audio peak. My apologies. (laughs) What was it? A mystery by Fitz James O'Brien. It is, I confess, with considerable difference. Nope. It is, I confess, with considerable diffidence that I approach the strange narrative which I am about to relate. So many writers start right off with like, hey, this you. is fucking weird, I apologize. It must have just been a thing of the time. Yeah. The events which I propose detailing are of so extraordinary and unheard of a character that I am quite prepared to meet with an unusual amount of incredulity and scorn. (laughs) I accept all such beforehand. I have, I trust... So I can just, like, lambast him right now? Yeah. You fucking idiot! Okay, I don't even know what we're about to hear, but he told me he wants it, so he's into that. All right. (laughs) 
I have, I trust, the literary courage to face unbelief. I have, after mature consideration, resolved to narrate in as simple and straightforward a manner as I can compass some facts that passed under my observation in the month of July last and which, in the annals of the mysteries of physical science, are wholly unparalleled. All right, so we're about to get some spooky. I live at number something, Uh, 26th Street in this city. So he's not giving away his his address, that's all. Oh, that's nice. It's number dash 26th Street, but he lives on 26th Street. Okay. So, I live on 26th Street in this city. This house is in some respects a curious one. It has enjoyed for the last two years the reputation of being haunted. It is a large and stately residence surrounded by what was once a garden, but which is now only a green enclosure used for bleaching clothes. The dry basin of what has been a fountain and a few fruit trees, ragged and unpruned, indicate that this spot in past days was a pleasant shady retreat filled with fruits and flowers and the sweet murmur of waters. This sounds like a New York City apartment. (laughs) They're like, we just tore down this beautiful garden and we put another building there or concreted it over. We used to have a garden. We just decided not to do anything. Now we have a concrete slab. The house is very spacious. It no longer sounds like a New York apartment. Nope, never mind. (laughs) The hall of noble size leads to a vast spiral staircase winding through its center while the various apartments are of imposing dimensions. It was built some 15 or 20 years since by Mr. A who five years ago threw the commercial world into convulsions by a stupendous bank fraud. Oh, damn. Mr. A. Mr. A, as everyone knows, escaped to Europe and died not long after of a broken heart. Almost immediately after the news of his decease reached this country and was verified, the report spread in 26th Street that number... This house... Was haunted by Mr. A. Maybe. Oh, well, why would he come back from Europe just I know. to haunt I his house? I'm to stay in Europe and stay haunt in a Europe. castle or something. They some got shit. cool ass shit to haunt like, over there. I don't need to haunt a tiny ass. Well, I guess these are big apartments. Big Maybe house, there's big still, apartments yeah. like by New York standards. We'll have to go take a walk down to 26th Street and see if there's yeah. a big ass haunted house. With a spiral staircase. Legal measures had dispossessed the widow of its former owner and it was inhabited merely by a caretaker and his wife, placed there by the house agent into whose hands it had passed for purposes of renting or sale. These people declared that they were troubled with unnatural noises. Doors were opened without any visible agency, The remnants of furniture scattered through the various rooms were, during the night, piled one upon the other by unknown hands. Invisible feet passed up and down the stairs in broad daylight, accompanied by the rustle of unseen silk dresses and the gliding of viewless hands along the massive balusters. Ew, this is a creepy ghost. This is not a dude, by the way got dresses on. Silk dresses. Well, I mean, unless he's into that, and go for it. Might just be a transvestite ghost, that's, that's okay. okay. 
The caretaker and his wife declared that they would live there no longer. The house, <laughs> the house agent laughed, dismissed them, and put others in their place. The noises and supernatural manifestations continued. The neighborhood caught up the story, and the house remained untenanted for three years. Several persons negotiated for it, but somehow, always before the bargain was closed, they heard the unpleasant rumors and declined to treat any further. Can I be honest? I would want to live in that apartment. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm such a chicken shit, but I love paranormal stuff and, like, growing up in England and old houses, like, I got weird googly googly stories and, uh... Yeah, I, I would want to live in that apartment. Well, besides, for a big-ass house on 26th Street... And it's probably going cheap. I'd put up with some creaky floorboards and inconvenient furniture. Yeah, I, like, I put up with a little demon action of moving my chairs around, you know? Sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta deal with... You just gotta make, make friends with the ghost. Yeah. Make friends. It was in this state of things that my landlady, who at that time kept a boarding house in Bleecker Street... Bleecker! And who wished to move further uptown conceived the bold idea of renting number 26th Street. (laughs) Happening to have in her house rather a plucky and philosophical set of boarders, she laid down her scheme before us, stating candidly everything she had heard respecting the ghostly qualities of the establishment to which she wished to remove us. With the exception of two timid persons, a sea captain and a returned Californian, whom immediately gave notice that they would leave, (laughs) all of Mrs. Moffat's guests declared that they would accompany her in her chivalric incursion into the abode of spirits. I love that the Californian's like, "Mm, bye! Like, no ghosts for me. I'm, nope, I'm headed I'm back to surf. I'll see you later. I'm going back west. No, <laughs> like, thank you. Um, these New Yorkers are nuts. And so began the West Coast-East Coast battle. <laughs> I think it started right there. Our removal was effected in the month of May, and we were all charmed with our new residence. The portion of 26th Street where our house is situated between 7th and 8th Avenues. Lord, that's a good neighborhood. Yeah. So it's 26th Street. 26th between 7th and 8th? That's like the heart of Chelsea, man. Like, yeah. Or like Flatiron District. Like, oh, man, this is fantastic. The portion of 26th Street where our house is situated between 7th and 8th Avenues is one of the pleasantest localities in New York. The gardens back of the houses running down nearly to the Hudson form in the summertime the perfect avenue of verdure. The air is pure and invigorating, sweeping as it does straight across the river from the Weehawken Heights, and even the ragged garden which surrounded the house on two sides, although displaying on washing days rather too much clothesline, still gave us a piece of greensward to look at, and a cool retreat in the summer evenings where we smoked our cigars in the dusk and watched the fireflies flashing their dark lanterns in the long grass. Okay, first of all, you know this was a long time ago because there is just gardens from 7th and 8th Avenue all the way to the frickin' to the Hudson. River. And you can see Jersey from there. Yeah. Like, that's, first of all, that's hilarious. Also, 
there's fireflies in New York City. Amazing. Yeah. I love some pre-pollution shit. Like, <laughs> let's let's break it down. Yeah, I would deal with the haunting for that. Yep, especially now. Damn right. <laughs> of course, we had no sooner established ourselves at the house than we began to expect the ghosts. We absolutely awaited their advent with eagerness. Our, right. our dinner conversation was supernatural. One of the boarders who had purchased Mrs. Crow's Night Side of Nature for his own private delec- delectation. Delectation. Mm. D E L E C T A T I O N? That's the one. Ooh, look at me. Uh, it is pleasure and delight. Uh, noun. Uh, used in a sentence, a box of chocolates for their delectation. Ooh. Mmm, chocolate. I like that. Ah, uh, yes, from the same root as delectable. delectable. Yay, love that. One of the boarders who had purchased Mrs. Crow's Night Side of Nature for his own private delectation was regarded as a public enemy by the entire household for not having bought 20 copies. <laughs> The man led a life of supreme wretchedness while he was reading this volume. A system of espionage was established of which he was the victim. If he incautiously laid the book down for an instant and left the room, it was immediately seized and read aloud in secret places to a select few. I found myself a person of immense importance, it having leaked out that I was tolerably well-versed in the history of supernaturalism and had once written a story entitled The Pot of Tulips for Harper's Monthly, the foundation of which was... A ghost. Oh, so he is the voice. So he is the voice. Yeah, he's writing this in the first person. I like to think that this is a true story. <laughs> it, it may very well be. Or at least an only moderately fictionalized account. Yeah. If a table or a wainscot panel happened to warp when we were assembled in the large drawing room, there was an instant silence. And everyone was prepared for an immediate clanking of chains and a spectral form. After a month of psychological excitement, it was with an utmost dissatisfaction that we were forced to acknowledge that nothing to the remotest degree approaching the supernatural had manifested itself. Once the butler asseverated... Asseverated? What's asseverated? Declare or state solemnly or empathetically... Once the butler had asseverated that his candle had been blown out by some invisible agency while he was undressing himself for the night, but as I had more than once discovered this gentleman in a condition when one candle must have appeared to him like two, I thought it possible that by going a step farther in his potations he might have reversed his phenomenon and seen no candle at all where he thought he had beheld one. So was he was he drunk? I'm I'm thinking that means he this that the <laughs> butler was was a little a little of the tips. Little tips, but that is pr- that is pretty funny that he's just the second he starts taking his clothes off like night the lights go out yeah. <laughs> and it get that ghost that ghost is sassy. Yeah. <laughs> 
Things were in this state when an incident took place so awful and inexplicable in its character that my reason fairly reels at the bare memory of the occurrence. It was the 10th of July. After dinner was over, I repaired with my friend, Dr. Hammond, to the garden to smoke my evening pipe. The doctor and myself found ourselves in an unusually metaphysical mood. We lit our large meerschaums. Ooh. I'm guessing that's a Candle type of pipe. or pipe? Meerschaums? It's definitely a type of pipe. Cool. A tobacco pipe with a bowl. So the, it's the actual bowl inside the pipe. Ah. So it's the clay. It's like what keeps the pipe from... It's where the hot stuff goes. Great. Oh, that's cool. We lit our large meerschaums filled with fine Turkish tobacco. We paced to and fro, conversing. A strange perversity dominated the currents of our thoughts. They would not flow through the sunlit channels into which we strove to divert them. For some unaccountable reason, they constantly diverged into dark and lonesome beds where the continual gloom brooded. It was in vain that after our old fashion, we flung ourselves on the shores of the East and talked of its gay bazaars, of the splendors of the time of Haran, of harems and golden places. Dark ifrites continually arose from the depths of our talk and expanded like the one the fishermen released from the copper vessel until they blotted everything bright from our vision. Insensibly, we yielded to the occult force that swayed us and indulged in gloomy speculation. We had talked some time upon the proneness of the human mind to mysticism and the almost universal love of the terrible when Hammond suddenly said to me, What do you consider to be the greatest element of terror? The question, I own, puzzled me. That many things were terrible, I knew. Stumbling over a corpse in the dark, beholding, as I once did, a woman floating down a deep and rapid river with wildly lifted arms and awful upturned face uttering as she sank shrieks that rent one's heart while we, the spectators, stood frozen at a window which overhung the river at a height of sixty feet, unable to make the slightest effort to save her, but dumbly watching her last supreme agony and her disappearance. Appearance. Whoa. A shattered wreck with no life visible encountered floating listlessly on the ocean is a terrible object for it suggests a huge terror, the proportions of which are veiled. But it now struck me for the first time that there must be one great and ruling embodiment of fear, a king of terrors to which all others must succumb. What might it be? To what train of circumstances would it owe its existence? I confess, Hammond, I replied to my friend, I never considered the subject before. That there must be one something more terrible than any other thing I feel. I cannot attempt, however, even the most vague definition. So what's your greatest fear? 
It's just like it's not just what's your greatest what's fear. The scariest is thing you can ever imagine. What is yeah, yeah? What is the greatest fear? Yeah. Not what is your greatest fear, but what is the thing? What is the thing that is most terrifying? To, of all things. Okay. Okay. I am somewhat like you, Harry. He answered. I feel my capacity to experience a terror greater than anything yet conceived by the human mind, something combining in fearful and unnatural amalgamation hitherto supposed incompatible elements. The calling of the voices in Brockton Brown's novel of Wheeland is awful. So is the picture of the dweller of the threshold in Bulwer's Zanoni. What's going? <laughs> I, uh, he's. I. I. It seems he's referencing, he's referencing horror stories. Horror and art and stuff. Yeah. Like that. But. Toy to toy. But he added, shaking his but. head gloomily, <laughs> there is something more horrible still than these. Look here, Hammond, I rejoined. Let us drop this kind of talk, for heaven's sake. You keep saying Hammond, and we just watched Jurassic Park this week. <laughs> so I keep envisioning that. And I'm like, I, I, Mr. Hammond if, definitely has a white beard and a cane. If I had a passable Richard Attenborough impersonation, <laughs> I would absolutely be doing it. But I do not. That's all I could see every time you call this guy Hammond. I don't know what's the matter with me tonight, he replied. But my brain is running upon all sorts of weird and awful thoughts. I feel as if I could write a story like Hoffman tonight, if I were only master of a literary style. Hammond's a name dropper, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we are going to be Hoffman-esque in our talk, I'm going to bed. How sultry it is. Good night, Hammond. <laughs> Good night, Harry. Pleasant dreams to you. Yeah, Harry's like, okay, that was one too many name drops. I'm out. <laughs> I, I was enjoying going to the Turkish, like, harem nights and all this stuff. To you, gloomy wretch, efreets, ghouls, and enchanters. We parted, and each sought his respective chamber. I undressed quickly and got into bed, taking with me, according to my usual custom, a book over which I generally read myself to sleep. I opened the volume as soon as I had laid my head upon the pillow and instantly flung it to the other side of the room. It was Goudon's History of Monsters, a curious French work which I had lately imported from Paris, but which, in the state of mind I had then reached, was anything but an agreeable companion. I resolved to go to sleep at once. So, turning down my gas until nothing but a little blue point of light glimmered on top of the table, I composed myself to rest. Yeah, he didn't turn his light all the way off. I was going to point that nope. out. Nope, leaving like, the nightlight I'm on. a little creeped out. <laughs> the room was in total darkness. The atom of gas that still remained lighted did not illuminate a distance of three inches around the burner. I desperately drew my arm across my eyes, as if to shut out even the darkness, and tried to think of nothing. It was in vain. <laughs> the confounded themes touched on by Hammond in the garden kept obtruding themselves on my brain. 
I battled against them. I erected ramparts of would-be blankness of intellect to keep them out. They still crowded upon me. While I was lying, still as a corpse, hoping that by a perfect physical inaction I should hasten mental repose, an awful incident occurred. A something dropped, as it seemed, from the ceiling, plumb upon my chest. Uh-uh. And the next instant, I felt two bony hands encircling my throat, uh-uh. endeavoring to choke me. I am no coward, and am possessed of considerable physical strength. The suddenness of the attack, instead of stunning me, strung every nerve to its highest tension. My body acted from instinct before my brain had time to realize the terrors of my position. In an instant, I wound two muscular arms around the creature and squeezed it with all the strength of despair against my chest. In a few seconds, the bony hands that had fastened on my throat loosened their hold, and I was free to breathe once more. Then commenced a struggle of awful intensity, immersed in the most profound darkness, totally ignorant of the nature of the thing by which I was so suddenly attacked, finding my grasp slipping every moment by reason, it seemed to me, of the entire nakedness of my assailant, bitten with sharp teeth on the shoulder, neck, and chest, Uh -uh. having every moment to protect my throat against a pair of sinewy, agile hands, which my utmost efforts could not confine. This is a demon. This is not a ghost. This is a demon because ghosts don't choke you. Ghosts, ghosts don't jump out of the ceiling onto your chest and then choke you. Like that's a different. That's a different. This is like. This is like a. This is. It's not good. It's not good. This Keep thing's going. super bitey. This. This feels yeah, very like vampire ghost. Vampire-y or werewolfy or or. Um, it's a demon. It's trying to possess them or something. Like, zombie or something like that. Yeah, I didn't know that it was these kind of ghosts. Like <laughs> walking up and down the stairs is one thing, but like emerging from uh like the ceiling and sitting on you and trying to choke you to death. Yeah, that's a different kind of ghost. Yeah. I don't so, play that game. Biting and clawing and choking. These were a combination of circumstances to combat, which required all the strength and skill and courage that I possessed. At last, after a silent, deadly, exhausting struggle, I got my assailant under by a series of incredible efforts of strength. Once pinned with my knee on what I made out to be its chest, I knew that I was victor. I rested for a moment to breathe. I heard the creature beneath me panting in the darkness and felt the violent throbbing of a heart. It was apparently as exhausted as I was. That was one comfort. At this moment, I remembered that I usually placed under my pillow before going to bed a large yellow silk pocket handkerchief for use during the night. I felt for it instantly. It was there. In a few seconds more, I had, after a fashion, pinioned the creature's arms. Okay, so he grabbed his handkerchief and tied the creature's arms. Yeah, but... why does he have it down there in the middle of the night? What's he using it for in the middle of the night? Sometimes you get excited and you have to clean up. <laughs> hey, at least you said it and not me. I'm just saying. I'm like, what's that handkerchief doing under his bed? Is it some lady visitors or, you know, some some alone time? 
I now felt tolerably secure. There was nothing more to be done but turn on the gas and, having first seen what my midnight assailant was like, arouse the household. I will confess to being actuated by a certain pride in not giving the alarm before. I wished to make the capture alone and unaided. <laughs> Men. Never losing my hold for an instant, I slipped from the bed to the floor, dragging my captive with me. I had but a few steps to make to reach the gas burner. These I made with the greatest caution, holding the creature in a grip like a vice. At last I got within arm's length of the tiny speck of blue light which told me where the gas burner lay. Quick as lightning, I released my grasp with one hand and let the full flood of light. Then I turned to look at my captive. I cannot even attempt to give any definition of my sensations the instant after I turned on the gas. I suppose I must have shrieked with terror. For, in less than a minute afterward, my room was crowded with the inmates of the house. I shudder now as I think of that awful moment. I saw nothing. Ah! 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 Where is his handkerchief? Yes, I had with one arm firmly clasped round a breathing, panting, corporeal shape, my other hand gripped with all my strength, a throat as warm and apparently fleshy as my own, and yet, with this living substance in my grasp, with its body pressed against my own, and all in the bright glare of a large jet of gas, I absolutely beheld nothing. <laughs> Not even an outline, a vapor. I do not, even at this hour, realize the situation in which I found myself. I just got super goosebumpy. It's really gross. Ah! I cannot recall the astounding incident thoroughly. Imagination in vain tries to compass the awful paradox. It breathed. I felt its warm breath upon my cheek. It struggled fiercely. It had hands. They clutched me. Its skin was smooth like my own. Where it lay, pressed close up against me, solid as stone, and yet utterly invisible. Oh, God. I wonder that I did not faint or go mad on the instant. Some wonderful instinct must have sustained me, for absolutely, in place of loosening my hold of the terrible enigma, I seemed to gain an additional strength in my moment of horror, and tightened my grasp with such wonderful force that I felt the creature shivering with agony. Just then, Hammond entered my room at the head of the household. As soon as he beheld my face, which I suppose must have been an awful sight to look at, he hastened forward, crying, Great heaven, Harry, what has happened? Hammond. Also, I told you so. Hammond, I cried. Come here. Oh, this is awful. I have been attacked in bed by something or other which I have hold of, but I can't see it. I can't see it. Hammond. Was he still holding it? He can still feel oh, it, yeah. Oh my god, gross! 
Hammond, doubtless struck by the unfeigned horror expressed in my countenance, made one or two steps forward with an anxious yet puzzled expression. A very audible titter burst from the remainder of my visitors. This suppressed laughter made me furious, to laugh at a human being in my position. It was the worst species of cruelty. Yeah, people suck, man. Now I can understand why the appearance of a man struggling violently as it would seem with an airy nothing and calling for assistance against a vision should have appeared ludicrous. Then, so great was my rage against the mocking crowd that had I the power, I would have stricken them dead where they stood. Hammond! Hammond! I cried again, despairingly. For God's sake, come to me. I can hold the thing but a short while longer. It is overpowering me. Help me! Help me! Harry, whispered Hammond, approaching me, you have been smoking too much. <laughs> you are stoned off your face. You can't handle the good Turkish stuff, Harry. <laughs> I swear to you, Hammond, that this is no vision, I answered in the same low tone. Don't you see how it shakes my whole frame with its struggles? If you don't believe me, convince yourself. Feel it. Touch it. Hammond advanced and laid his hand upon the spot I indicated. A wild cry of horror burst from him. He had felt it. Oh! <gasps> In a moment, he had discovered somewhere in my room a long piece of cord, and was the next instant winding it, nodding it about the body of the unseen being that I clasped in my arms. Harry, he said in a hoarse, agitated voice, for though he preserved his presence of mind, he was deeply moved. Harry, it's all safe now. You may let go, old fellow. If you're tired, the thing can't move. Oh. I was utterly exhausted, and I gladly loosed my hold. Hammond stood holding the ends of the cord that bound the invisible twisted round his hand, while before him, self-supporting as it were, he beheld a rope laced and interlaced and stretching tightly round a vacant space. I bet that shut up the fuckers in the room. <laughs> I never saw a man look so thoroughly stricken with awe. Nevertheless, his face expressed all the courage and determination which I knew him to possess. His lips, although white, were set firmly, and one could perceive at a glance that, although stricken with fear, he was not daunted. The confusion that ensued among the guests of the house who were witnesses of this extraordinary scene between Hammond and myself, who beheld the pantomime of binding this struggling something, who beheld me almost sinking from physical exhaustion when my task of jailer was over, the confusion and terror that took possession of the bystanders when they saw all this was beyond description. The weaker ones fled from the apartment. The few who remained clustered near the door and oh, could I'd not... I'd go touch it. I'd go touch it. <laughs> ...and could not be induced to approach Hammond and his charge. Still, incredulity broke out through their terror. They had not the courage to satisfy themselves, and yet they doubted. 
It was in vain that I begged of some of the men to come near and convince themselves by touch of the existence in that room of a living thing which was invisible. They were incredulous, but did not dare to undeceive themselves. How could a solid, living, breathing body be invisible? They asked. Oh, God. My reply was this. I gave sign to Hammond and both of us, conquering our fearful repugnance to touch this invisible creature, lifted it from the ground, manacled as it was, and took it to my bed. Its weight was about that of a boy of fourteen. Oh my god. Oh. Now, my friends, I said, as Hammond and myself held the creature suspended over the bed. Wait, is this Harry Potter in an invisibility clothes? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 14, he'd be in his fourth year. About right. Yeah. It's about right. He has the cloak at this point. Just saying. I don't remember him ever dropping off of someone's ceiling to try to strangle them. Maybe Malfoy got or, a hold of it. Or ever visiting New York. You know what? Maybe it's the kid from uh, Fantastic Beasts. <laughs> now, my friends, I said as Hammond and myself held the creatures suspended over the bed, I can give you self-evident proof that here is a solid ponderable body which nevertheless you cannot see be good enough to watch the surface of the bed attentively i was astonished at my own courage in treating this strange event so calmly but i had recovered for but i had recovered from my first terror and felt a sort of scientific pride in the affair which dominated every other feeling the eyes of the bystanders were immediately fixed on my bed. At a given signal, Hammond and I let the creature fall. There was a dull sound of a heavy body alighting on the soft mattress. The timbers of the bed creaked. A deep impression marked itself distinctly on the pillow and on the bed itself. The crowd who witnessed this gave a sort of low, universal cry and rushed from the room. Oh my god. Uh. Hammond and I were left alone with our mystery. We remained silent for some time, listening to the low, irregular breathing of the creature on the bed and watching the rustle of the bedclothes as it impotently struggled to free itself from confinement. Have you asked it a question yet? Then Hammond spoke. <laughs> Harry, this is awful. I, awful, but not unaccountable. Not unaccountable? What do you mean? Such a thing has never occurred since the birth of the world. I know not what to think, Hammond. God, grant that I am not mad and that this is not an insane fantasy. Let us reason a little. Here is a solid body which we touch, but which we cannot see. The fact is so unusual that it strikes us with terror. Is there no parallel, though, for such a phenomenon? Take a piece of pure glass. It is tangible and transparent. A certain chemical coarseness is all that prevents its being so entirely transparent as to be totally invisible. It is not theoretically impossible, mind you, to make a glass which shall not reflect a single ray of light, a glass so pure and homogeneous in its atoms that the rays of sun 
shall pass through it as they do through the air, refracted but not reflected. Hammond, you smoke too much. <laughs> we do not see the air, and yet we feel it. That's all very well, Hammond. But these are inanimate substances. Glass does not breathe. Air does not breathe. This thing has a heart that palpitates, a will that moves it, lungs that play and inspire and respire. You forget the strange phenomena of which we have so often heard of late, answered the doctor gravely. At the meetings called spirit circles, invisible hands have been thrust into the hands of those persons round the table, warm, fleshy hands that seem to pulsate with mortal life. Ew. What, do you think then that this thing is, I don't know what it is? What was is the it? <laughs> was the solemn reply. But please the gods, I will with your assistance, thoroughly investigated. We watched together, smoking many pipes all night long by the bedside of the unearthly thing that tossed and panted until it was apparently wearied out. Then we learned by a low, regular breathing that it slept. Oh! Hm. Aww. Aww, sweet baby! It's all, it's all tuckered out. I'm not gonna lie, they haven't asked it a question. I would be like, who are you? Why are you here? Do you speak English? Yeah. Uh, Parlez-vous français? Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Yeah. Like, come on. Ask it some questions. The next morning, the house was all astir. The boarders congregated on the landing outside my room, and Hammond and myself were lions. We had to answer a thousand questions as to the state of our extraordinary prisoner, for as yet not one person in the house except ourselves could be induced to set foot in the apartment. The creature was awake. This was evident by the convulsive manner in which the bedclothes were moved in its efforts to escape. There was something truly terrible in beholding, as it were, those second-hand indications of the terrible writhings and agonized struggles for liberty which themselves were invisible. It's oh God. Hammond and myself had racked our brains during the long night to discover some means by which we might realize the shape and general appearance of the enigma. Cover it in powder. Get, get a bunch of baking soda. <laughs> Cover it in honey and flour. Honey and feathers. Tar and feather. Well, tar let's and not, feather it. Let's not tar and feather it. That'll kill it. We don't know that it's... Oh, yeah. That's true. It, yeah, we don't... Honey, honey and flour. Honey and flour. Honey and sugar. Honey... Ooh, yummy. <laughs> as well as we could make out by passing our hands over the creature's form, its outlines and liniments were human. There was a mouth, a round, smooth head without hair, a nose which, however, was a little elevated above the cheeks, and its hands and feet felt like those of a boy. At first we thought of placing the being on a smooth surface and tracing its outline with chalk, as shoemakers trace the outline of a foot. <laughs> This plan was given up as being of no value. Such an outline would give not the slightest idea of its confirmation. A happy thought struck me. 
we would take a cast of it in plaster of Paris. Jesus. This would give us a solid figure and satisfy all our wishes, but how to do it? The movements of the creature would disturb the setting of the plaster covering and distort the mold. Another thought. Why not give it chloroform? <gasps> it had respiratory organs. That was evident by its breathing. Once reduced to a state of insensibility, we could do it we could do with it what we would. Dr. X was sent for. I like that all of the names and Dr. numbers X. are. Dr. <laughs> X! Like, he's protect. It, that's what makes it feel like it's a true story. It's yeah. like everyone's being protected, except for Dr. Hammond. Names have been changed to protect, protect the, the innocent. innocent. The guilty will burn in hell. <laughs> Come on, Dr. X. Dr. X was sent for. And after the worthy physician had recovered from the first shock of amazement, he proceeded okay, to administer the chloroform. <laughs> In three minutes afterward, we were enabled to remove the fetters from the creature's body, and a well-known modeler of the city was busily engaged in covering the invisible form with moist clay. <laughs> In five minutes more, we had a mold, and before evening, a rough facsimile of the mystery. It was shaped like a man, distorted, uncouth, and horrible, but still a man. Oh. It was small, not over four feet and some inches in height, and its limbs revealed a muscular development that was unparalleled. Its face surpassed in hideousness anything <gasps> I had ever seen. Gustave Doré or Callot or Tony Johannet <laughs> or Tony Johannet never conceived anything so horrible. There is a face in one of the latter's illustrations of Un Voyage où il vous plaira, well. a French story, which somewhat approaches the countenance of this creature but does not equal it. It was the physiognomy of what I should have fancied a ghoul to be. It looked as if it was capable of feeding on human flesh. Having satisfied our curiosity and bound everyone in the house to secrecy, it became a question what was to be done with our enigma. It was impossible that we should keep such a horror in our house. It was equally impossible that such an awful being should be let loose upon the world. I confess... Eh, let it loose on the New York streets. <laughs> it's fine. People won't even They're notice. scarier things. I confess that I would have gladly voted for the creature's destruction, but who would shoulder the responsibility? Who would undertake the execution of this horrible semblance of a human being? Day after day, this question was deliberated gravely. The boarders all left the house. Mrs. Moffat was in despair and threatened Hammond and myself with all sorts of legal penalties if we did not remove the horror. Our answer was, We will go if you like, but we decline taking this creature with us. Remove <laughs> oh, it yourself if you please. It appeared in your house... On you, the responsibility rests. That is some bargaining chips. That's bargaining chips right there. That is legit. To this, there was, of course, no answer. Mrs. Moffat could not obtain for love or money a person who would even approach the mystery. 
The most singular part of the transaction was that we were entirely ignorant of what the creature habitually fed on. Everything in the way of nutriment that we could think of was placed before it, but was never touched. It was awful to stand by day after day and see the clothes toss and hear the hard breathing and know that it was starving. Ten, twelve days, a fortnight passed, and it still lived. The pulsations of the heart, however, were daily growing fainter and had now nearly ceased altogether. It was evident that the creature was dying for want of sustenance. While this terrible life struggle was going on, I felt miserable. I could not sleep of nights. Horrible as the creature was, it was pitiful to think of the pains it was suffering. At last, it died. Hammond and I found it cold and stiff one morning in the bed. The heart had ceased to beat, the lungs to inspire. We hastened to bury it in the garden. It was a strange funeral, the dropping of that viewless corpse into a damp hole. The cast of its form I gave to Dr. X, who keeps it in his museum on 10th Street. As I am on the eve of a long journey from which I may not return, I have drawn up this narrative of an event most singular that has ever come to my knowledge. Note. It was rumored that the proprietors of a well-known museum in this city had made arrangements with Dr. X to exhibit to the public the singular cast which Mr. Escott deposited with him. So extraordinary a history cannot fail to attract universal attention. Ew! Is this a true story? I don't know. I don't know. It's Okay, so the fact that I didn't share during Fun Facts was this was the first story to exhibit the use of invisibility as huh. a terror, as like, All right. like in that form. Oh, so it's um, what is the greatest terror? The it's unseen. The unseen. The unknown. What you don't know. Yeah. Because he's like, what's the scariest thing? He's like, I don't know. I'm going to bed. And then he witnesses it. And then he, yeah. The... <laughs> Which is why Dr. Hammond came in and he's like, hey, I found it. I figured it out. I'm looking for museums on 10th Street. <laughs> We've got the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Spaces. I mean, that sounds about right. That's, that's probably not it. Um... There is the Rodin Museum of Art is on 17th. Oh. Oh, no, that's not Rodin. That's Rubin. Rubin Museum of Art. All right. Yeah, I'm not seeing any museums. Yeah, well, I mean, this is also a long time ago. A long time ago. A long time ago. All right, well, that was creepy. So that was fun. That was... Ooh, is there a cryptozoological... I, there is definitely a cryptozoology like museum in town somewhere. The International Cryptozoology Museum is in Portland, Maine. That doesn't help me. Oh! So I just looked it up. Fuseli's The Nightmare, which is a painting most people have seen, whether they know it or not, is mm -hmm. what they think this story was based on. Oh! I'm going to put it on our Patreon page and on the website. <laughs> 
because it's a creepy ass picture and you've probably seen it at some point because it is it's a it's a photo you've seen it's a painting a photo <laughs> the photo of a painting that yeah. you've probably seen if you've ever taken like an art history or something along those lines all right. Yeah. So that was that was a story about the terror of the unseen. The terror of the unseen. What is it? We never found out, but what it was died. It? it died. Whatever it was. I don't think it was ever alive. I'm guessing they buried it and it all happened again. <laughs> <laughs> the thing just comes, it attacks, people get it, nobody talks about it, and then it all happens again. It was a mass hallucination. It's the best Turkish weed you've ever smoked in your life. <laughs> Or the worst. Or honestly. the worst. Real bad like a trip. Real bad trip. The yeah. whole thing that the whole thing actually happened. That entire story happened in the like twenty minutes after they first started smoking. Yeah. They he never made it to bed. No. He imagined the whole thing. The long journey from which he might not return is just him waking up. Waking up. Yeah. yeah. Either that or it's that thing that's right behind you. Nothing. I just kept staring at you. My whole body tensed. <laughs> There's only a wall behind me, but I guess the thing fell off the wall. The thing fell off the ceiling. Oh, fuck. I'm not going to sleep good tonight. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, happy Tuesday. (laughs) Uh, So that was was our story for the day. Um, If you have suggestions, please keep putting them on the uh, website or emailing us or however you want to contact us. Uh, Thank you again to the Thinking Horror Facebook group. For all your suggestions and yep. specifically to Murray Leader. So, yay, that was fun. Love it. Creepy, creepy. Let's do it. Good. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. This has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Jump scare.